part of the strategy, I think, for any major decision that's made boils down to what I always called, how do we tell the story? How do we tell our story? Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode number 56 and the one-year anniversary of this podcast. Time really does fly by. If you think my math is a little off, remember that we launched four episodes that very first week. I'd like to take a moment and thank all of my guests for this past year. I greatly appreciate all of you for your willingness to share your knowledge and experiences to help serve those who listen. I have to thank my audience for taking time to listen to these episodes each week, and I hope you've been able to act on some of the information that has been provided. Personally, this has been an absolute blast. I had no idea where this would go when I launched it last year. And to date, there's been over 9,000 downloads reaching 48 countries, all 50 states, and 120 U.S. cities. Once again, to all my guests and to my audience, thank you. Today's guest is Clark Price, who's the retired CEO of the Ohio Society of CPAs. That name might ring a bell because he was the very first episode of my podcast series. Clark is one of my mentors, and I'm very lucky to be able to call him a friend. Clark completed a 40-year career with the Ohio Society of CPAs, including 22 years as president and CEO of this progressive, nationally recognized association serving certified public accountants. Before being named CEO, Clark worked in virtually all areas of the operation, including public relations, membership development, governmental relations, and marketing. The Ohio Society CPA's record of innovative leadership was recognized by the American Society of Association Executives when the Ohio Society CPAs was selected as one of the nine remarkable associations as part of an extensive nationwide study of successful associations. Working with the good to great author Jim Collins, the American Society of Association Executives, publication, Seven Measures of Success, What Remarkable Associations Do That Others Don't, featured the Ohio Society CPAs as the only state-based membership organization profiled in the Seven Measure study. In this episode, we discuss challenges that leaders today face, for example, social media and decision-making and provide suggestions on how to overcome these challenges in order to provide strong leadership to your organization. Well, with that said, let's get to the interview. Clark, um, it's fitting that we're doing this interview today because when this thing airs, it'll be the one-year anniversary of Improv is No Joke podcast, and you were episode number one, and to date... Outside of the intro, you have, still have the most downloads, and it's still downloading each and every month, which is a testament to 
the information you provided, and not to not to raise the bar too high here, but the testament of of what you brought to that first podcast information, people just absolutely love it. So first and foremost, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to um, talk with me. Well, thank you. But first off, congratulations on a year. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, great to see something succeed like th- this podcast series has. So congratulations on that. I, and I appreciate your very kind comments uh, about the first one. I'm still sit here uh, somewhat take, taken aback by the fact that I have uh, been so popular for downloads. It's great for my ego. You know, right now, both in the, the bit of work I'm doing with a variety of associations uh, and what I'm seeing in my own service sitting on a university board and some charitable boards, I have a concern that's gathering steam uh, about the, how risk-averse organizations of every stripe that I can think of have become. When you say risk-averse, in what context? From uh, Absolutely almost paralyzed for some, but fearful will pr- probably be a better way to do it, that they're going to make a bad decision. And, and not necessarily only a bad decision in they're going to make an investment or invest in a program that's not going to succeed, uh, but even that they'll take a position on, on minor issues uh, in some instances that their membership for or constituency for whatever reason will disagree with, and that disagreement will then manifest itself in a social media campaign, uh, not just criticizing the decision or action that, that was taken, but actively organizing of it's not enough just to say we're upset. There has to be a penalty of some sort. A perfect example, uh, over the last several weeks, uh, the New York Times has come under attack for hiring a, a writer um, who is a climate denier and identified and acknowledged climate denier uh, to, to be a reporter in their scientific section. Uh, they're a group of people um, that are now on social media organizing a as protest, we all have to cancel our subscriptions to the New York Times. And when you say climate denier, define that for me. The, the, the one who doesn't believe in, in climate change. Yeah, global climate warming, warming is not real. Okay, I just want to make sure. That, We've okay. always had periods uh, of global warming and warming, and we're simply in a cycle. Okay. Not that we're on the precipice of catastrophe, which a lot of people um, believe. So the, this group that is on the how dare the New York Times hire a writer who has an opinion that conflicts with my opinion, and we now have to punish the New York Times, and the only way to punish them is financially, so let's all cancel our subscriptions. And there have been similar movements around other issues. Um, you, you, see, you can see it manifest in um, the, the association and not-for-profit environment where it used to be, going back to the good old days, let's put quotes around good old days, the only time people of like mind could express their opinion in in mass was when they attended a meeting of some sort, in person. Right. 
So the association board makes a decision. There might be people in the membership that feel strongly that this is the wrong decision. And really, the only time they could organize um, to, to try and do anything was when they intended a meeting of some sort, generally sponsored by the association. And that just, in and of itself, was had the effect of stifling dissent. Now, with social media, any group can organize, any person can get out there and with an aggressive strategy, organize and mount a campaign of whatever sort saying this decision's wrong. So it might be they've decided to make an investment uh, in, in some activity that the people think is wrong for the association. And suddenly you have a what used to be called a small rump group now becomes a chorus that are on a regular basis hammering how terrible this is on social media. And social media's reach, how many followers mm. do you have? You know, you st- suddenly start to see these, these groups gain traction. So that has the net effect of leaders of organizations saying we absolutely positively have to be sure that this is the right thing. We absolutely positively have to be sure that the membership's going to support this. What I've observed in some of the groups I've worked with as they're discussing uh, a step that in the grand scheme of things, I don't think anybody would consider major, it, it becomes, well, have we surveyed the membership? And then it becomes the argument of, well, how valid is the survey? How broad was the survey? Yeah, have we really done the outreach to let everybody know what we're going to do and give them an opportunity uh, to object? And, and what that has the net effect of doing is delaying decisions that need to be made, uh, as well as reducing the risk tolerance of, we've got to put a stake in the ground on this issue. Uh, there's lots of change that 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 is going on, you know, across the landscape as a whole that you you have to consider. Uh, so how do groups respond? One that I think is a very dramatic. We're going to put a stake in the ground. Purdue University has just bought Kaplan. Now Kaplan has existed out there for a long time. Has had recently financial problems, uh, par- partially due to how the U.S. Department of Education has been uh, cracking down on the for-profit higher education um, environment. Now, Purdue buying Kaplan is a major step. That's where their board, I think, and they have a very aggressive university president, said we need to enter dramatically uh, the online higher education market Do we build it or do we buy it? If we're going to build it, it's going to take forever. If we buy it, and particularly if it's something that's already established, we can shortcut that timeline and beat the competitors. Because every university right now, almost every university, is looking at how can we enter the online market. You know, they are concerned because of the ads that they see from uh, the New Hampshire, I can't, can never remember the name of 
of a university in New Hampshire that spends boatloads of money advertising their Southern New Hampshire University. Right, right, yeah. Southern New Hampshire University spends boatloads of money advertising their online programs. Very effective in their advertising. They have an ad that's running right now where the Southern New Hampshire University blue bus pulls up and they are delivering the diploma to an online student who could not attend graduation. Now, I don't know that they're doing that for every student, but if I'm sitting out there thinking, where am I going to go? I need to ad advance. Where am I going to go? Suddenly, Southern New Hampshire University looks like they care. Right. And so there, there's an example where the competitive environment in higher education is becoming very, very aggressive. And, and again, an example where board has really stepped up and, and made a major uh, step forward. But, but is, that's, that's not typical. But this is 2017. You've got Southern New Hampshire. You've got WGU, I think, is Western one. Western Governors that, University. Which, and then you've got... But, if I go back to my days at, at ODU, or even if I go back to my days at Franklin, Franklin was one of the leaders in online education back in 2000, yes. 17 years ago. Uh, when I went to ODU, they dabbled in it, but they never, I maybe to the, that, that risk tolerance level, didn't want to take on that additional risk and decided to go down a different path in Division II football, yada, yada, yada. But now that the landscape has completely changed, You've got, listen to this, you've got this massive onslaught of we need to get there now. Yes. That's taking a, a big risk, or, or, or is it? Because the big risk was 17 years ago. Is it, is it out there to say that we're seeing that we're, now we're seeing the effects of online education, what, it, what it's doing, maybe it's got some of the bugs out, maybe now's the time to do it? Well, there's a variety of things that are going on. One, there it was a great unknown. Was it really going to gain traction? So, 17 years ago. Yeah. Clearly, it's gained traction. Yeah. So, 17 years ago, and in the intervening years, it was easy to take the position, well, let's just watch and see what happens. And you'd have some skeptics of uh, whether the skeptics are, that's not a, a good form of education or people really aren't going to buy it, so why do we need to make the, the, the investment? You're right. Franklin University has made a major investment for a long time in developing not just a curriculum but competence in developing that, that sort of curriculum uh, and making it very broadly available. Uh, you have more and more institutions that are now realizing, hey, there's money to be made out there. Uh, there, there's a campaign that I just just read about that is keyed around the theme, it's time to finish. Looking at those students, on whether it was in a traditional in-person academic environment or online, that withdrew for whatever reason. I don't have time, I don't, I'm not enjoying this, whatever. The campaign of it's time to finish saying, your credits are transferable, right. and we have programs that are relevant, practical, interesting, engaging, whatever. And so their target is not that student that's saying, yeah, I can't afford the traditional environment, and so I'm going to look online, or I don't have time, and I want to do it on my time. This is, we're going to recapture your inv in 
interest. You started at one point saying you're interested, withdrew for whatever reason. Let's capture your imagination again and get you through a program that leads to a degree. So there is a movement in, in the space now that's pushing people up saying we've got to do it. They also look at, you know, Phoenix had huge success for many, many years. Right. They're struggling a bit now. Kaplan being the same way, and there are others out there, that's leading to a, we need to t make an investment, we need to take a risk and head down a road. Um, and that risk factor, going back to where I yeah. started this, is boards and leaders generally need to become more risk tolerant. Yeah, I'm going to look back in time and talk, maybe it's generational differences, maybe it's not. But there used to be an attitude of, let's try it. If it doesn't work, we'll fix it or we'll stop it. Uh, but we've got to take steps to move forward. And now the fear of making a bad decision or having some sort of blowback, in many instances, paralyzes organizations. I think ESPN is going through this right now. Uh, I've read a couple of, even from some of the anchors, that said the position that they took on Caitlyn Jenner really upset a lot of their sponsors, and their sponsors sure. pulled out. And ESPN just laid off, what, last week, about 100, 100 people. 100 people. And they've been talking since... You know, some of the positions that they have taken, um, we, yeah, but if we don't make bad decisions, how can we find good decisions? That's right. Uh, that's the whole improv thing. Bad decisions just bridges to good decisions. Now, let's, I, I just want to explore this because let's go back to 2001, 2002, when you were CEO here at the Ohio Society, and correct my timing if, if I'm wrong, but you decided that we were going to eliminate chapters. And that was not a very popular decision amongst a group, similar to what the social media group, you know. It, bring that decision today. Oh, <laughs> that is a great example. You know, when that the decision to eliminate 12 geographic chapters that were sponsored on the umbrella of the Ohio Society of CPAs, each with their own local committees, their own board. They made their own decisions. They sponsored programs. But for a variety of reasons, our leadership, the board at the time, concluded that that wasn't necessarily an organizational structure that would work best for the future. Uh, and after a lot of discussion, a lot of research, mm -hmm. market research among members, the decision was made, yes, we're going to eliminate our, our geographic chapter structure. The rank and file membership, just as the research indicated, did not care. The group that cared in most instances were those who were current or recent chapter leaders, chapter board members. Uh, and there was a move at that point that was initiated, that was critical of the decision, uh, that was based on a handful of blast emails. That was, in early 2000s, that was the social media response, a series of blast emails. Um, into that decision, in today's environment, social media could ramp up the volume dramatically. And volume 
is and volume not of support but of discontent suddenly starts to to translate into show up we have to show up at every event the organization sponsors in person and be that loud volume shouting this is wrong you're you're wrong and you have to change it it just is able to mobilize people in a fashion that we couldn't in the past and one of the things that, that to me has always been the danger so much in social media in a live environment when you're standing there screaming at the rooftops that this is a bad decision based on your behavior or what i know of you i'll be blunt i may decide you're an idiot and i'm just going <laughs> to ignore it that that you're not credible on this issue right social media that raving lunatic component is in many cases hidden oh yeah and on social media and we have seen it in a variety of forums truth doesn't always play out in terms of the arguments that are advanced so social media contributes dramatically to this inaction on major issues by organizations of every type not just not for profit or or organizations um i i think anytime most uh, colleges and universities decide they have to increase tuition rates there is a concern of okay what what's the response going to be on social media not just what's the response going to be from students but then who's going to gin up what sort of uh, negative response or extreme negative response in the social media environment that's a, a very real issue uh we're we're seeing it across organizations of every type the times being one example restaurants what there's protests going on right now that are anti Wendy's hamburger chain because Wendy's has not signed on to some group um that is advocating for better treatment better wages better conditions for those who pick tomatoes that translates into stop buying at wendy's you'll boycott yeah and on where it used to be i've got to look you in the eye to get you as excited as i am about how terrible it is that Wendy's is not yeah. joining this campaign to improve conditions for those who who pick tomatoes uh on social media we can gin up a crowd at over any issue that may or may not take personal action in terms of actually showing up at a protest but they'll talk to their friends stop by eating at Wendy's right. so what what should i mean so in, in thinking about as you, the air quotes back in the day, I remember you and the board, or you and the chair, went to all the chapter boards and met with them face to face and had this discussion on why. And you, there, there was some dialogue that that went on, but in today's environment, we're not having that dialogue one on that one on one dialogue. I'm posting it. I'm 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 gathering the masses. Then, as a leader, what should Wendy's? What should the Times? What should what should they do? How should they respond to the noise that's out there? With because I think 
part of it is the non-response. I, I agree that non-response is is um, a deal killer for organizations. The, the failure to respond and failure to respond appropriately is well, what's appropriately <laughs> um, one with the truth yeah. where it's necessary. One where there, two there, where there is, where the criticism is valid, acknowledging it. How much heat did United Airlines take for their initial, the CEO's initial response uh, on the unfortunate incident that occurred on a United Airlines flight? And suddenly it, it took them a couple of iterations to get out there, not presuming that their people were right. And that's always a a risk because they don't want to upset the union or their employees if they're not unionized. (laughs) But they've got to acknowledge we were at fault or we made a bad decision. But the the number one issue is you've got to lay the facts out and how it was done. When you talk about when the chairs and I would make the rounds and tell a story, uh, it was always around, here's how the decision was made. Here is the process we went through. Here are the points that drove the decision over whatever that decision might be. It used to be you'd do that in person and you'd publish an article in your mo- whatever your monthly newsletter or whatever is. Now the communications strategy has exploded. Because you still have to do those in-person events where you can. Depending Mm -hmm. upon uh, the issue of the environment, you want to go to the media and and use what I'll call traditional public relations strategies to get them to help tell your story. You use your own publications. You have to use your website. And how can that be most effectively done? And the one that I think most organizations struggle with today is, and then how can we leverage social media to tell our side of the story? Right. And the strategies that then unfold are, do we or don't we respond directly to the the negatives that are occurring by the anti-component on social media, or do we concentrate on simply telling our story and relying on social media itself to spread our version. Different organizations, different approaches, different circumstances, different situations dictate how you're going to respond to that. So the PR Mm -hmm. side of it um, is incredibly important uh, in today's environment. But the one thing that, that is true across every organization, you can't be silent. You can't think, oh, this is going to play out and go away. Let's just turn our backs, or let's just eventually that, that, that cycle will just and people will forget yeah. all about it. It that, that, that in today's environment is is not workable. So going back to where I started with this, it means organizations, and whether they're not for profits, whether they're charitable, or whether they are what the, we'll call traditional businesses, um, you have to be thinking about. How do we respond in today's environment? What are we going to do? Uh, what are we going to do that adds value? What are we going to do that makes us relevant? What are we going to do that uh, allows us to make the best use of the 
resources, primarily financial or manpower that we have available, uh, to better position us for the future. And that better position us for the future, I think, is the critical issue that most are afraid to address. What I observe is people are very slow to accept changing marketplace realities, new competitors. What used to be partners now become competitors. And what are we going to do and how are we going to respond? Uh, And that means you've got to be prepared to take some risks. And going going back (laughs) to where this all started, and too many groups are risk-averse. And they think, well, we'll wait this out and we'll see what's the really right thing to do. And if in I've been with some groups that have made the decision we're not going to act right now, and somebody else acts and they have a, a hiccup or a failure, their board members say, see, we made the right decision. When they could have moved forward if they'd been just a little bit aggressive. Uh, or very aggressive, dep- depends on the group. Those are issues that are making leadership today very challenging. It's as you're describing this. It's the it's the leadership by hesitation. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have that pause. And you know, I, I I'm I'm a big believer. We need, businesses need to be need to take on risk. They can't be risk averse because if you look the same way you did last year, you're probably not going to be around much longer. Oh, by the way, do you have a BlackBerry on you? Just kidding. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> kind of on th- th- those lines. But, you know, when did we go to the thinking that we can't make mistakes? When did we go to the, the thinking that I always have to be right 100% perfect because that's impossible? And if, and if we're driving leadership in that manner, it's just not a really decent picture of leadership moving forward. It's Pete, you're right, it's not. And but unfortunately, it's a realistic picture of what leadership looks like today and I think is going to influence leadership um for for a long time. And what what drove the change? I wish I had an answer. I've thought about that a lot. I think part of it is driven by the incredible time pressures that everybody is facing today and they're not as vested uh, in outside organizations or their own organizations as they used to be. Uh, nobody wants to, to and today, uh, it's the rare exception where you find somebody who is willing to be identified with failure. And boy, it's the really rare instance where somebody not just willing to be identified with the failure, but willing to be identified as that failure was my idea, or that I supported that failure. Uh, I've seen a number of instances where people who were involved in a decision to do something that turns out to have been a failure or a bad decision, they won't even try to set the record straight of why we made that decision. Even if it's saying we had bad research, it's they just don't want to be associated with it. Uh, that then rotates back to inaction. We're fearful of our jobs. We're fearful because it's, it's, you made the bad decision, gone. That's right. Uh, so if, if 
why am I going to make it? Why am I going to make any decisions if if there's going to be those negative repercussions to me that I'm going to lose my job? Then yeah, we won't take we won't take responsibility. We won't take accountability. And, and quite frankly, we won't take. The, we're not a leader. Yes, and we're an order taker. In in the corporate environment where we're making corporate decisions, people are loath to be identified with that failure. It's also, whether it and whether it leads to you're fired, or whether it leads to the whispers of Peter yeah. Clark was behind X. Right. Uh, mm. You don't want to involve them in this project, or uh, take what they say with a grain of salt. Um, so there are downstream repercussions right. that then lead people to, I think, and I observe, not necessarily be supportive of risk opportunities that are out there right because you know if i'm going to support you there's the other side what's in it for me yeah and there's a lot of that what's in it for me and if it fails and now you've tarnished me and then the whispers and stuff are in the back hall and, and that's that's you know the thing is that's, that's the, the whispers are always going to be there and, and I, I think the stronger leaders, and they might hear them, but it doesn't. It doesn't have the same effect on them uh, as it as it has on others. It's. I, I don't know. I, I it's, that's very valid points, and it's the question in my mind is, how do we fix it? How do how do we? I mean, social media, is social media. It's not going to go away. Well, yeah. how do we? How do we? If you want to step back and and look at it a, a little bit pragmatically, in many respects, social media uh, is the newspaper of old. When I began my career, 1969, uh, as a public relations guy, the primary target that we had for everything was print, the newspapers. Newspapers are less and less important today, right. unfortunate, but it is a reality. Uh, so now you end up looking at how do we harness the various platforms that are out there. And part of the strategy, I think, for any major decision that's made boils down to what I always called, how do we tell a story? How do we tell our story? Right. How do we tell a story of how the decision was made, why is it important, what are the consequences uh, in a variety of forums? Uh, and, and whether that is social media, whether that is on websites, whether that is in print, whether it is the talking head standing up in front of a group of people, uh, whether it is webcasts that allow you to do that, all the strategies that, that are out there, they need to be factored in and into the plan. Now, and today, for many people, for many groups, all of that seems overwhelming. And what they decide is, uh, let's wait. Or let's punt. Or how critical is this really? What are the consequences of inaction? What we have to do to fix it is get our leaders thinking about the importance of the, the future in one instance. Uh, the import that being appointed uh, to any leadership role means you actually do have to lead. It's not not enough to simply be present as a leader. Now let's put a broad fence around leader. 
As a leader, you have to be prepared to actually lead. Make decisions. Make the tough decisions. Think about the future. Where are we going? What is important uh, for this organization? Uh, how do we confront the negative challenges that loom out there, either today or on the horizon, uh, and keep this organization or this entity uh, relevant to whatever constituency we serve, whether it is members, whether it is donors, whether it is customers, what are we going to do to ensure that we keep relevant? Uh, and that means you've got to be constantly scanning uh, the competitive horizon. What are the things that loom out there that are going to impact us? And then how do we either, how do we anticipate? At the latter case, how do we respond? And how do we respond may actually be too late. The key is anticipation. Anticipation. And I'm going to go back to something that you said about telling our story. So as I think of the person on social media who's bringing up this big groundswell, there's, there's, they're emotionally charged. They're saying may have this will affect the families or how it affects these families and yada, yada, yada. My question is when, when corporate America is responding to this, are they telling an emotionally charged story? Or are they telling a story wrapped around complete data with no uh, uh, analogy, put it in a way that, 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 charge, that, that starts that emotion? Um, is, it a, is it a data dump or is it a story that has a, a human factor to it? Uh, is my question. I, I've been doing a, a ton of reading lately about one of the challenges corporate America has is telling a story that's just not all data and facts and yeah. statistics and graphs. It's creating that analogy to help with that emotion of who we are. Yeah, and how is it going to affect you? Right. How yeah. does our action or inaction affect you? Right. You as member, donor, uh, customer, cho choose what you will. Uh, telling the story I have always felt is the critical step uh, in, at a minimum, gaining understanding. Uh, the desirable is gaining support. All too often, people think uh, they don't care. Our group, you know, whatever the group we're serving or affecting, they're not going to care. In today's environment, people care. Yeah, a and particularly social media gives them a platform to express how much they care to a broad audience and also a platform to say, this affects me and this is wrong. And this is why in the yeah. emotional side of the story. So th that leader, to your point on, on anticipation, is we know that all decisions we make are, are not going to be 100% supported. So in that, that forecast, that anticipation, what, what, could be, what, what could be the negative response out there, and how do we respond to that within our story in a manner that's just not facts and figures and graphs and, and stuff? How and how can we tell that story that's going to lessen, mitigate that negative response? Right. Right. How do we get people on our side? That, that is yeah. the critical. How do we get people on our side? How, how do we... Uh, gin up excitement and enthusiasm for what we're doing. Rather than this is wrong, this is great. 
And then you get into, okay, how do we manage competing voices? You'll have the negative voice. Mm-hmm. How, do, how, how do we get the volume from the positive voice to drown them out? And why does it always take five times more of the positive voice to oh, drown out the negative voice? Well, primarily, <laughs> I think, because the negative voice generally has great passion behind it. And the positive voice, generally speaking, uh, is slower to respond because there's not as much passion around whatever the issue is. And look at how the response has been to President Trump. There are detractors of the president today Mm -hmm. who are very loud in their volume. Uh, Many of them through social media. Mm -hmm. It seems to me the supporters of the president, they seem to come in waves of when the volume goes up, uh, where the detractors, their volume is constant and in many responses increasing. Uh, I'll use an example of a group I am aware of on social media that has created a, a forum within a Facebook group for people to express frustration, concerns, anger, all I will say in a very positive manner. They're not, we must rise up and Mm. and do whatever, but it is primarily about expressing frustration uh, and sharing articles that they they find, the results of conversations. I'll I'll give one real world example that I've used a variety of times. Uh, I will freely admit that I was in the never Trump school during the election. Okay. Not necessarily a raving fan of Hillary Clinton, but uh, definitely in the negative school when it came to President Trump. There is a group of former friends and colleagues CEOs of other associations that we get together on a variety of times a year, either for dinner or occasionally to play golf. Two of the the group, there were four of us, two of the group uh, were pro-Trump as a candidate, but primarily because they were violently anti-Hillary Clinton. Right. I remember very distinctly a dinner where, and we always talked politics, where I expressed my support for Hillary Clinton. And dinner became a chorus of, you are dumb as a stump. Yeah. And just a, a series of challenges among friends that was frustrating. Yeah. Was was very frustrating to me, and I have experienced it play out in a variety, similar in a variety of other forums. And as I talk about it, I have other people that tell the same story, of to a degree that they've never experienced before, in, particularly in presidential elections, the the polarization that occurred, the divided friendships, and in my case, it has added an, an I- impact. That's a concern. That's a very real concern. Uh, and, and again, gets to telling the story. And everybody has the right to, I've always felt, everybody has the right 
to their opinion. Uh, and I have always fought the urge to think, how stupid is he or she mm -hmm. when they voice an opinion that I don't agree with uh, and to remind myself they are entitled to their opinion. Uh, and the notion that I'm going to convince them that their opinion, uh, particularly on political matters, is wrong and they need to change mm -hmm. how they're going to vote is an uh, absolute wasted effort. Yeah, I've, I've, um, I've had this for a number of years uh, where I've had that. Some, there, there's some of my friends who uh, we can have the point-counterpoint discussion in a very respectful way, and at the end of the day, going, okay, you got an opinion, yeah. I got, we don't agree. Okay, let's go have a cocktail. Versus there's some who goes to, you're, how, oh, you're yeah. just like an idiot to even think that way. Say, well, well, we, we, we're all different. We all think differently, but we've lost that respect. We have, and, and it, it becomes very broad. In, in its effect and impact. I'm a former lobbyist. One of the thing, changes that I observed in the legislative process over time was you used to be able to sit in a gallery and watch debate on a bill. And Pete, you and I would be members of the House. And in that debate, the casual observer would think you and I are on the edge of coming to a physical confrontation. But on the very next issue that was up for debate, you and I were on the same side working together and appeared as lifelong friends. Right. What's happened over time is so many people have established a litmus test, and it might be on a social issue, it might be on taxes. Yeah, choose what it is. And if you don't support my opinion, I don't want to be identified with you over anything. Right. And I seriously believe that that has led to the dysfunction that we observe in our, our elected bodies today. The notion of leadership and compromise has become... <laughs> Uh, a real, really dirty set of words in the political environment today. Uh, yes, there is occasional compromise that, that occurs. Uh, but the, where, where we used to have debate on an issue, a give and take and compromise, rarely happens today because of these positions that have been staked out. And it doesn't just happen in the legislative environment. It also happens in the uh, community and social en environment uh, that that's going on. Yeah, whether it's uh, the popular ones today, immigration, taxes, homeless. I mean, choose the issue that you want. People stake out a position and then proselytize that everybody has to share my opinion. Right. Rather than think, Maybe there's a middle ground in this. We, we forgot what the middle ground was. Yeah. Uh, what I do talk about in probably my presentation, I talk about respect. And I go, you know what you call an institution that has no respect for each other? Congress. Yeah. Because it's my way or the highway. And it, that's not leadership. That's ego. It, it is. And then, again, it's looping back hmm. to, so, to social media and environments. And then there is this tremendous concern 
about how as my base, not my constituents, but my base, how are they going to respond to the decision that I make? Yeah. You know, today there is this fear that, that the extreme, whether it's the extreme right or the extreme left, is going to get behind a, a competing candidate because I haven't voted the right way. Rather than you elect me to make decisions on your behalf and I'm going to make the best decision that I can. And that's unfortunate. And it gets that loops all back to leadership and who's going to stand up, tell the story, and try to rally support for what we're trying to accomplish. Some respects, I, I had this conversation just yesterday uh, with someone that some think the, the master of that is President Trump, who does the rallies where he tells his story. Mm -hmm. As I think about that and try to be objective, I can agree that he's out there telling his story and, and rallying support. Unfortunately, he's, he's telling his story to his base and not necessarily trying to expand the base right. and get more people to say, I understand now. And I know there are some that may be listening to this that say you're absolutely wrong. He is the great communicator, and, and he is telling his story, and people are buying in. I'm sorry, I'll disagree. Yeah, I, and you know what? That should be the beauty of it, allowing that disagreement. I, I, don't, I don't share that opinion. And, and, and I think part of the role of leaders um, is to moderate that disagreement, to provide one, to provide the forums uh, for both sides to be put out on the table. But then leaders need to, to be prepared to take the heat, tell the story, and, and then in some instances admit it was a bad decision and move on. Yeah. At that point, move on, fix yeah. it and move on. But right now, we have people that are frightened of the negative response, so consequently they don't do anything. When you, I, every time we, through this whole conversation, when we've talked about if it's a wrong decision, fix it and move on. Fix it and move on. Yeah. Well, makes me think of two things. One, Steve Jobs, that was his mentality. Don't, you know, if it's not going to work, fail, just move on. But I still go back when I was living in Atlanta years ago, and I still remember when New Coke came yeah. out. And I think it lasted maybe 30 seconds. Yes. Because even though they did the market research, even though they did all that and invested into it, but when the mass public got a hold of it and the response negative to it, bad decision. Move on. Let's yeah. Let, let's fix it. It's or, off the market now. Yeah. Okay, we we listen to you, and we're moving on. Right. Leadership in this sense today is really very difficult. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of planning and strategy of how are we going to tell the story, which I keep looping back mm -hmm. to but what are we going to do to continue to be relevant and whether that is improve our product improve our conversations make a change uh you know right now in the association a membership organization mm -hmm. and environment i i think we're starting to see a movement of mergers and consolidation 
That's an emotional issue to some. It's like chapters. The whole conversation yeah. chapters. National organizations are gobbling up their state structure. Again, a, a variation on mm -hmm. the, the chapter issue. Why do we need six organizations serving this specific constituency? And so you are seeing consolidation. It started a number of years ago um, over trade shows, the big trade shows, primarily mm -hmm. in Las Vegas, Orlando, Chicago, mm -hmm. locations like that. I don't care what the industry is, there would be several different organizations that over the course of a year would have a trade show. Then there became a movement of, well, why don't we co-sponsor this show and make it bigger? And then it became, well, why don't we buy this trade show? And, well, you know, our organizations are serving the same industry. Why don't we merge? And that brought out strong responses from members of, I don't want to lose my XYZ association or be part of the ABC association. Uh, but, but it happened, and I think there's going to be more of that, partially driven uh, by relevance or lack of relevance. Lack of relevance, yeah. Part of it's going to be driven by economics mm -hmm. uh, and the, the competitive environment, and those are all going to be real challenging to deal with. Well, with the lack of relevance, if you don't have membership yeah. or new members coming and paying the dues, then it turns into a financial decision, and the whole economics of it, and that's are we, are we relevant? And I also think it goes back, are you telling your story? Again, my focus is voluntary membership associations because that's what I right. built my, my career around. I'll give you an example of the shift that it, that is occurring. A number of years ago, uh, the American Society of Associations worked with Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, uh, to do a major research project across associations that led to publication of a book called Seven Measures of Success. Got that book. That were, yes, were <laughs> seven very specific issues that as they Collins and the group looked at this landscape of associations, things that these seven attributes led to incredibly strong associations. Fast forward several years, Harrison Kerber, a consultant to associations, writes a book, The Race for Relevance. And his premise was, forget everything else relevance is what's going to be the defining factor for success in the future. And what do you do to determine relevance and to become relevant? That, that's the entire focus of it. And now there, there's a successor to uh, race for relevance. Uh, I think it's road to relevance or something like that. But in any, in any sense, we've got this notion of What's the value we're going to provide and how are we going to be relevant? And in the course of that, you're going to make some decisions of where are we going to place our emphasis, where are we going to expend our resources, and that means some longstanding programs or activities ultimately fall by the wayside. And there are always people that love those programs and will say, that's the reason I'm a member, and you just eliminated it. In today's environment, then we've got this opportunity for that group that says, you've made a bad decision to increase their volume across a broad audience saying, not just you made a bad decision, 
but how dumb are you? And you should not be leading this organization. Right. That then contributes to inaction and being averse to taking risks and making changes, which is where I started this whole commentary. <laughs> but but that that that's what's going on yeah. today that makes it um, being a leader incredibly challenging and makes the need for strong leaders, people who are willing to say, I'm going to take the chance. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to take the chance on making this decision. That's one of the things that I, I have so enjoyed uh, about my time serving on the Franklin University board. It is a board comprised primarily of, of business leaders. Mm-hmm. Variety, a number of us are retired, but all of us held senior business positions. We are blessed with a very strong president uh, who brings issues to us, but a board that uh, studies issues in great depth, but is willing to say, we need to try this. And if it works out to be the wrong decision, we'll fix it or we'll stop it. There are a few boards that I am involved with right now that I feel as strongly about that have that sort of an orientation, a willingness to say, the environment is changing. What are we going to do to change? What new roads are we going to head down, knowing that it might not succeed? You do your research to think, yeah, it's got a good chance. Uh, of succeeding, and it gets debated in depth. Some might say ad nauseum. But then it becomes, but we'll fix it if it's a bad decision. And people are afraid too often today that I won't get the chance to fix it. The volume will become so great that I have to step down. I have to resign from the board. I have to resign from my position. And the CEO, in a Membership organizations becomes a lightning rod, and often they're the person that gets blamed. And I always said I get paid to take the blame. Right. But now it is uh, not enough to say you made a bad decision. We have to replace you. And that's happening very frequently. Yeah, I, I, can, I can only imagine that. Wow. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is interesting to be the outsider sitting there with a volunteer board. And just observe the behaviors. Oh. Who's there? Who talks? Right. Who doesn't talk? Who, if they're prompted, will respond and, and, and respond with something that's reasonably strong intellectually? Who's just along for the ride and a free lunch? Yeah. Who's prepared? Yeah, it's, you can tell who's prepared generally speaking, and who isn't prepared. To me, that's uh, one of the most important attributes uh, for leaders is being prepared. And if, and if it's something that you might not know a lot about, yeah, then go it. find out. Yeah, and learn it before it's going to be discussed. Don't, right. Don't rely on others to, in, in the discussion, perhaps educate you because more often than not it's not going to be real education right because that per- oh i don't I, that's a responsibility yeah. that's out. a responsibility of leadership right and every board has people that are engaged every board has people that are not engaged and the ones who are not engaged 
shouldn't be there. <laughs> exactly. All to, yeah, every board is different. Sometimes they're there because they've been a major contributor mm -hmm. or their employer's been a major contributor. Uh, sometimes they're there simply because they've been a soldier rising through the ranks. Yeah, you, you, you get drafted and you serve on a committee. And before you know it, you've hung around, you haven't done anything stupid or bad, you become chairman of the committee. Then maybe you move to another committee. Maybe it's, well, he was chairman of the X committee or she, we need to bring them up onto the board. And before you know it, you're on a board. And then suddenly you get a phone call saying, we'd like you. Uh, to start through the chairs. And if you really step back, it's because you haven't created any problems, you yeah. haven't been controversial, you haven't really contributed, but you've shown up. Uh, and, and people are busy today, and those that are really engaged many times are saying, I don't have the, the additional time to really invest in being an officer, go through the chairs, or, or, or whatever. And subsequently, you get many organizations get people as chair. They really shouldn't be. There. And that's been a fact for years. It's been a fact forever, I think. Sometimes you get one of those people and you can capture their imagination and get that spark going and get them to invest in getting smart and being a leader. You take them to a conference. You give them a book to read. Yeah. And suddenly then they get energized. But all too often, that simply doesn't happen. As as an interview I recently saw uh, with Simon Sinek, and he's talking about leadership. You know, how do you measure it? How do you do it? And I, I love this. Leadership is something that you practice every single day. Every single day, you work on something, work on something, work on something. It also reminds me of a, of a TED Talk of a, of a professor from a Walsh University, Phil Kim did, talking about these small wins lead to great gains. And I, I think some in leadership, maybe in the board leadership, it's, I'm not thinking about that on a day in, day out basis. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm not, I'm not practicing it. Or I might not be, I'm, you know, I, I love what someone says, I, I, well, I'm not a leader right now. And I go, do you work with people? Yes. Do you have an effect on somebody else? Then that you are a leader. It's the effect that you have on the other person. And, and I, I didn't, make that cognizant uh, uh, recognition until this interview with, 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 with Simon Sinek that I watched when he talks about that. That's, that's truly, leadership's not authority. Leadership is the way you affect people. And it doesn't matter, you can be at the highest level and you can be at the lowest level, but that lowest level person can't have an effect on somebody else. That's leadership. You know, and it goes back to attitude and it goes back to, you know, coming in, ready to work, ready to do, do your job. And, and not being a, you know, the dark cloud that was. Using that example, you know, I used to say that the average board member simply shows up. A good board member shows up and they're prepared. They've at least mm -hmm. read the agenda and, and hopefully any supporting material that's there or done some, some research on their own. An exceptional board member actually does something between meetings. They've got an assignment that they're mm -hmm. going to fulfill. Uh, they, they call to talk about an issue that is percolating through the, the organization. And then the one in a hundred fantastic board member 
between meetings or even at a meeting brings up an issue that's out of the blue yeah and yeah. says i've been thinking about x and how it's going to affect us something that hasn't been on the agenda before those are the ones that have the potential to be extraordinary leaders because they're thinking out there over the horizon and saying this is going to affect us, or I think this is going to affect us. What do you think? And then how are we going to respond? And how are we going to respond? And let's make sure we respond. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times, how are we going to respond? And we come up with the idea, and then we come back to reality. And then it falls to execution. Of, uh, yeah. Do yeah. we have a culture? Do we have a process yeah. that allows us to take translate idea to reality? Right. Will the board support it? Yeah. And tell, then how are we going to go out and tell the story? Right. That's it. Clark, I miss the hell out of you. Yeah. yeah. I, love, I, I, I love these conversations. Um, I, yeah, this is the quickest hour that's flown by. I love the insight. I am going to have to get you on one of these podcast episodes. And, and we're just going to talk about the 30 years of your travels. Yeah. And some of your favorite places that you visited. And some of the best restaurants that you've you've been. And that that could be an hour in itself. So, one, thank you again for taking time. Always enjoy our conversations, and I look forward to our next one. Pete, thanks very much. This was great. I would like to thank Clark again for spending time with me on sharing his thoughts on the impact that social media is having on today's leadership style. Listen, learn, and earn. I have partnered with the Maryland Association of CPAs and the Business Learning Institute to bring an exciting new learning opportunity for accounting professionals to earn CPE credits. You can earn up to one CPE credit for each completed podcast episode purchased for only $29 through the Maryland Association of CPAs and the Business Learning Institute self-study website. The podcast episodes are mobile-friendly. Open your browser on your smartphone, tablet, or computer, go to the MACPA BLI self-study account, and listen to an episode. Take the review and final exam while you're working out or after listening to an episode on your commute to and from work. It's that easy. While all selected Improv No Joke podcasts are available on my website, only those purchased through the MACPA BLI self-study website are eligible for CPE credit. You can get detailed instructions by visiting my website at petermargaritas.com and clicking on the graphic Improv is No Joke for CPE on my homepage. I hope you enjoy this exciting and flexible new way of earning CPE credit. Remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you'd like to purchase a personalized signed copy of my book, Improv is No Joke, use the improvisation to create positive results in leadership and life for $14.99 and the shipping's free, please go to my website and you'll see the available now on my homepage. Just click and go to the shopping cart. In addition, you can now download Improv is No Joke audiobook for $10. You can follow me on social media. You can find me on Facebook by searching The Accidental Accountant. On Twitter, my Twitter handle is at pmargaritas. Connect with me on LinkedIn by searching my name and on Instagram by searching pmargaritas. 
In episode 57, I interviewed Jason Michaels, who is a professional entertainer, speaker, and author with an astounding experience in the arts of deception. A storyteller by heart, Jason loves to blend impossible mysteries with unforgettable tales. Thank you again for listening, and remember to use the principles of improvisation to help you become a stronger leader. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.